0: Hey guys, welcome to Four Point Church. My name is Pastor Russ. We're honored that you've taken some time out of your weekend to open up God's Word with us together. We're in the second week of a series called the One Another Campaign. We're looking at the 59 unique calls throughout the New Testament for us to do something in consideration of another. And so as we look at this, our ambition would be that you would take some time in the early part of this year, that's usually a season where you focus on your personal goals, And you would look at how you could increase your margin for those around you, for our community. I believe that this year God is going to bless Four Points Church in some incredible ways that Right now, there are people between now and the end of the year who are disconnected from God and the community of Christ who are going to come into our contact, and this series is a groundwork series where if we apply it, we'll become the kind of community that is able to welcome, greet, and represent the gospel well as those who are far from God or disconnected from the community of Christ come into our community this year. Last week, we talked about the need for us to intentionally make margin to be considerate of others. It may seem almost simplistic that we would have to be reminded to be considerate, but it's very easy in a busy life and in a busy world to become very inconsiderate of those that are around us. And so we want to make margin to uh, consider, take note of, how can we help, how can we be helpful, how can we be a good friend, how can we be a good community to those that are around us in our church community in this year. Now, today we're going to turn our attention uh, to this second one another. Uh, this one another is going to be found in John chapter 13. I want to give you some context. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn and open there with me. John, uh, the, the gospel writer, uh, spends more time than anybody else uh, on the last moments of Jesus Christ's life. In fact, John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17 looks at this one span of a few hours Uh, of Passover to ultimately Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion that come in chapter 18 and on. And so there's so much attention that's given to Jesus' last words in John 13 to John 17. And today we're going to see this call that Jesus makes around the Passover feast with his disciples in his last moments to remind them of what they need to do in the moments that were about to take place. After our One Another campaign, uh, we will be looking at a lot of these stories in John chapter 13 to John 17, all the way up until Easter this year. And so we're going to spend the good, a good part of the first four months of the year in John 13 to John 17 and 18 as we get ready for, the, uh, for Easter, where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Jesus knows that in a few short hours, he will be betrayed by Judas, who was at dinner with him in this moment. He'll be denied by Peter. He'll be abandoned by his other disciples who will all forsake him in his hour of need. He will face an unjust trial before Pilate. He'll be scourged beyond recognition by a professional Roman officer. He'll be mocked and jeered and sped on by the masses and die naked in the most excruciatingly painful way via Roman crucifixion. Yet what we find in John 13 in his last hours here before his crucifixion is him taking the time to offer comforts for the disciples who would find a plethora of fear, worry, and doubts that would come in the wake of Jesus' arrest and death. These are Jesus' last words that he would speak before his cross. Last words matter more. And so these words that Jesus is speaking are the last words that he will speak to his disciples to encourage and to build them up, to give them what he believes is essential for what lied ahead for them. In the not so distant future, I want you to consider a time maybe when you were talking to someone whose time was growing or coming to an end. And in that moment, you likely weren't talking about the weather. You weren't talking about tertiary or secondary things that don't really matter. You may have started there, but usually when you know your time is short, you talk about what matters most. I think about my grandma. Several years ago, I came back from California and was getting what would end up being my last conversation with her in person. We didn't spend time talking about wrestling or current events or what celebrity was wearing whatever they were wearing or posting whatever they were posting. Instead, we talked about heaven. We talked about eternity. She had questions and concerns over what awaited her, and I wanted to offer comfort to her with the confidence that we could have that in Christ there was this guaranteed future that she was about to walk into. I think about my Aunt Kim, whenever uh, we go back just a year ago in time to her battle with cancer that she was in. And it was the last conversation I would have with her through her screen door as we were trying to keep her away from covid And so through the screen door, we didn't talk about secondary stuff, when she was going to go to the grocery store again, what her favorite food or the new restaurant she wanted to eat at would be. Instead, we talked about the assurance of God's love that she had, and that even though she was suffering and going through great difficulty, God loved her and had promised and sealed and sent it to her through the word of God. I think about my grandfather who near his, at the end of his life, one of the last conversations I had with him, centered on the cross, and he affirmed to me how Jesus' cross gave him great hope in his time of need. So when you look at these words in John chapter 13, know you're looking at Jesus' last words to his disciples before he would go and die a gruesome and painful and difficult death uh, that would ultimately lead in a resurrection, but in the process lead to a lot of uncertainty. So over this Passover meal, John chapter 13, in verse 34, we pick up this incredible text where Jesus, in his hour of need, takes time to comfort his disciples by saying this. So now, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now this is such an elementary thing to have to say. But think about how often you have to say it to people who just, for whatever reason, refuse to get along. They love each other. And it, and it seems simple, especially for a group of disciples who have been around Jesus, to think that they would be kind to each other. But we know that they were, just like us, prone to silly arguments That would be unloving or cause them to be rivals of each other instead of people who expressed and demonstrated love to each other. I mean, just a few chapters prior in another gospel, we know that they were arguing over who was going to get to sit closest to Jesus when he came into his kingdom. And they had these weird rivalries. In fact, John's not absent from this. Several times throughout the telling of this story, he talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved most, which he's speaking of himself in reference to him being distinguished from Peter. And so it's very easy inside and outside of the church to be unloving to everyone else that's around us, so much so that we have to hear it from our parents growing up. And then when we become parents, we have to tell it to our kids frequently. Can you just love each other? And Jesus, in the limited time that he has left, takes the time to remind them of this. And he says it in this way, a new command, a new command. So it's not a, if you feel like it, Peter, if you feel like it, John, if you feel like it, James, if you feel like it, Matthew, it's, this is expected, and it's expected, we'll learn why uh, later on, it's not just expected because you ought to, it's expected because Jesus has modeled it for them, but it comes in the form of Jesus saying strongly, a new command I give you, do this, whether you feel like it or not, whether you want to or not, love one another. Now, it is a lot easier for me in my flesh, if I'm being honest, to do any and everything that's not expected of me. But the moment you put an expectation and a command to it, I tend to, in my flesh, want to rise up and do the exact opposite. And maybe you can relate to that. I've had to do a lot of work of teaching myself to think differently about Jesus' words and his commands that he calls us to in the scripture. And so one of the questions that came up to my mind as I studied and read that command and my flesh rose up not wanting to love certain ones that are in the church, one of the things that came to mind was this question. Are the commandments of God burdens to me or are they gifts to me? Do I, do I view them as an added weight on my shoulders or a gift? And here, here's why I believe the commands that we see from Jesus are actual gifts. The commandments of God are gifts to us, because they clarify what life in Christ will look like. So it's a gift because it demonstrates that if we are submitted to Jesus, if we are walking in step with Him, then the fruit that will be uh, born in our life and seen by those that are around us it are these things. That we would love one another. If we're walking with Jesus, a love for each other should permeate our uh, conversations, our actions, the way that we look at those that are around us. And so Jesus, in giving us commands, doesn't give us burdens, but instead, I would argue, gives us clarity about what the church and what people of God who walk with God should live and look like. So Jesus in his commands clarifies what this new way of being human will look like for those who walk in the path of Christ. So the command is what comes first. It's not whether you feel like it or not. I will, would remind you that in the book of Ephesians, we're told husbands love your wives. It's a commanding statement. It's not love them if they do something lovely. Love them when you like or trying to get something from them. Like you are called to love your wife. And in this text, we're called to be loving to our neighbor. Your closest neighbor is your spouse if you're married this morning. And I would suggest that perhaps the starting point of this command to love one another should start start in your marriage, if you are married, if you're a parent, it should probably start within your family, and if it's wrecked there, it's probably going to be a wreck within the church or in other community spaces, where you could be walking and representing the gospel uh, in step with Jesus. So the command comes to love one another. It seems simple, it seems elementary, and it's not the first time the disciples have heard this. If you go back to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, they would have heard and been in the hearing of this statement. So now I'm giving, or excuse me, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment, speaking of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just a little quick theology here. Jesus is, uh, this guy's trying to trap Jesus, and instead, Jesus essentially traps him or gives him a very sneaky answer. The first five commandments deal with your relationship with God. So essentially, Jesus is saying you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, because if you love him in that way, you'll be obedient to the first five commandments. And oh, by the way, don't think that that eliminates commandments six through ten, because the commandments that come after commandment five deal with your relationship with each other. So it starts with a vertical relationship with God. You love him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That means you won't covet. That means you won't take his name in vain. And if you're doing that, if he is your treasure, if he is your focus, the byproduct means commandments 6 through 10 become easy to keep because you won't covet your neighbor whenever you're pleased and satisfied with what you have already in relationship with God. So a second is equally important. It's not less important. But it's almost a pathway whenever you're obedient in commandments 1 to 5. Commandments 6 through 10, which deal with your horizontal relationships, become a lot more easy to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he says. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So we're to love God and love others. Love God and love others people. The disciples have heard this, yet they still need a reminder in the waning moments of Jesus' life from him to adhere to it, to apply it into their life. So if the disciples have heard it, why spend the last moments here? It must be, if Jesus is spending time on it, it must be essential to the Christian way of living. Love is essential to the Christian way of living. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, known as the love chapter, we read it at a lot of weddings. It's speaking of Christ's love for the church primarily. And it says this, If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, And if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love, look at what it says, others. If I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. I want you to consider what is being said here. Essentially, no matter how, how gifted you are, no matter how much impact you make, at the end of the day, if it's not seasoned and marked with a love for God that leads to a love for others, what will end up happening is it'll come across the wrong way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that love is the greatest gift that Christ has given. And any gift not practiced in Christ's love is a misrepresentation of Christ himself. So Christ gives us the greatest gift by demonstrating his love and laying down his life for us, and we now being uh, objects of that love, are not to hoard that love for ourselves, but instead we're to share that in the demonstration of what Christ has done to others. So h- here's the problem. Here's the challenge. If we're not careful, we could practice our ministry, we could say the right words, and at the end of the day come across with the wrong message to the world, even if we got the words right because it's not seasoned in the right attitude of love. So I asked Austin to bring in a simple illustration that will help us understand where this can go wrong. So Austin represents the target, a person in our church. That's the context that John 13 has written. He's telling the disciples to share love with each other. Or he could represent a person outside of the church that God loves, and he has allowed us to be their neighbor or allowed us to be a coworker with them. And if we practice our gifts that, in a way that's not seasoned in love, what he hears is not good news but loud noise. And that can be problematic. So some of you have the gift of discernment, and maybe you see someone in church someday that's struggling in an area of their life, and you pick up on it, but you don't love them, so even though you've used the gift correctly and you see that there's an opportunity for gospel correction or a gospel conversation, you come at them without the attitude of love using the gift God's given you, so instead of it being a good encounter, it comes across as just a noisy encounter. See, this is the problem. Some of you have the gift of hospitality, but you don't love the people you're serving. So even though you have the spiritual gift of hospitality, it doesn't translate the gospel because all you're doing in an unloving way is using a gift that God has given you, missing out on the fact that the target was that Austin would see in the discernment and in the hospitality the gospel in a clearer way. My concern for us is that this simple call to love one another could be overlooked and dismissed in such a way that we miss out on the fact that we're missing the mark in how the gifts of God and the work of God should be heard and seen through our lives. I'm not going to hit that again and annoy you anymore. Thank you, Austin. I really appreciate the help. So, my question is not are you gifted, not are you on mission, but as you are using the gifts that God has given you, And as you're making the difference in the space where God has placed you. After all, you're not living where you live, uh, working where you work, doing the things that you're doing by accident. Acts Acts chapter 17 goes so far as to say that God appointed the times and places for which you and I would live. So we are people of providence. We have been placed on purpose. God is not desiring or there shouldn't be like this. Well, maybe he'll work through us like God desires clearly to work through you in the places that you're at for his glory in wake of and in light of eternity. But the question is, are you serving others in love? Is your motivation just their shame and your uplifting? Or is your motivation that they would, be, uh, see, that they would see the gospel clearly, that they would be rooted in Christ truly, that they would ultimately walk and see the gospel clearer because of their interactions with you than perhaps what they had before? You see, good ki- good gifts practiced without love strikes the wrong note. Good gifts practiced without love strike the wrong note. And look, the American church has made an entire playbook on how to do this the wrong way. From bullhorns to ministry methods that demonize others, make some seem unreachable while others maybe could be reached. I mean, like we, we do a great job of practicing gifts that God has given us in a way that actually misrepresents Christ. And, and here's why I bring that up. The text says in verse 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another. So we're like, well, I'm being loving by yelling at them on the street, or I'm being loving by telling them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. Well, here's the, 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 the I think, the, the litmus test. Here, here's what I think kind of Stretches us to look a little bit further as to whether or not our motivation and what we're doing is actually Christ or not. It says, A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. So, So this is the gut check moment. This is how you know you are hitting or missing the mark. Many call what they do loving, who are Christian. But it looks nothing like what Jesus did while he was on earth which means by his very words, it doesn't represent him and it's unloving. Jesus is saying that the love he is speaking of should mirror what he modeled and lived by the Holy Spirit on earth, meaning if you say it's loving and it looks nothing like what Jesus did, it's not love and there's no debate. Let's look at this through the lens of correction. We are at times going to be called to correct each other. After all, the scriptures teach us that God the Father disciplines those that he loves. And it's important that we point out each other's faults that misrepresent the gospel. And so whenever we see a fault in a brother or sister in Christ who professes to be a follower of Jesus, it is our duty to go to them ourselves and correct them, to point them back to the gospel. But if we're not careful, we can find some weird sense of identity and worth over their failure and come at them in an attitude that doesn't represent the attitude in which Christ confronted sinners while he was here on earth. So we've got to be careful that in the correction, we do it in the attitude of love. And here's my point that I wrote down. If your correction is to be done in love, it will carry the tone and invitation of redemption, hope, and grace Found in Christ for whosoever would turn to him. There's been plenty of times where I've seen a brother or sister in sin confronted them, desiring that they would see the gospel, see their error, and not in shame walk away, but in conviction walk with me as we continue to seek for Jesus to work in our lives to make us into the image of Christ. And unfortunately, in that confrontation, no matter how delicately done, no matter how clear the gospel was or the error of sin and the opportunity to do something different was, they ran away instead of repenting. Because every time we're confronted in our sin, we either repent or we run. But there have also been times, if I'm honest, where I've confronted someone that I already didn't like, didn't want to tolerate, didn't want to consider, and they were wrong, and I was fed up with dealing with them. And in my correction, there was no offer of pointing to the gospel, the hope of redemption, or a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh chance. Instead, there was a hopeless presentation, an apathetic offering of grace and correction, but I did not desire to walk with them in the path of redemption that God would call them to walk in. You see, you and I have to be careful. Jesus corrects us, but he invites us into fellowship, not dismissing us from fellowship. So let me, let me take it a step further to describe the kind of love that Christ lived by. I want you to make sure you can check yourself and ask yourself, am I using my gifts in a way that hits the mark of the love that Christ speaks of in John 13? Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 defines what Christ did and what his love looked like. It says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners while we were still enemies God demonstrated his love. I mean, love, you've heard it from DC Talk, is a verb. It's something that is seen. So you don't just say, well, you know, you'll know uh, that I love you because I told you once back in like 1993, and if that ever changes, I'll tell you again or show you again. No, you, you see love in the way that you respond to people when they come into your presence, in the way that you speak to people, whether it's in correction or in building them up. I mean, it's something that's experienced in your actions towards another if it's loving, because this is what Christ did. He doesn't shout from afar, God loves you, but he demonstrates God's love for us by walking amongst us as Emmanuel, by dying for us and laying down his very life for us. First Corinthians chapter 13, it goes on in the love chapter to say that love never gives up. I mean, that's Jesus' love for us. Though our sins are like Uh, Though our sins are many, they have been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, I mean, his blood was sufficient and he laid it down for us because he never gave up. Yet for for some of us, we call it loving, but we've given up on them, which makes it very hard to be obedient to this commandment. Why would we give up when Jesus hasn't given up on us? And so it says love never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful. This is tough. Uh, There's some people that we want the love of Christ to intersect their life, but if we do have any interaction with them, it's not done with the hope that Christ is at work or that Christ is not done or that His grace is sufficient for them. And if we're not careful, that mindset and that attitude can leak in in such a way that it leads us to be unloving towards those that are around us. Now, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't say in the text, New command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. He, he doesn't stop with, you know, just do it because you ought to, because I did, and you either need to feel guilty about the fact that you've received something so great as my love, and you're not sharing. Like, like, that's not in the vernacular of what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is, I've modeled for you what this looks like. He's about to model it in the most extreme of ways. He, in spite of their abandonment, lays down his life for them. In spite of their betrayal, shares the table with them. In spite of them denying him, he still will restore them to ministry, give them the Holy Spirit, and use them to be a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and to the very ends of the earth. Their entire life is going to be changed and marked by the love of what Christ was going to do for them on the cross and what would happen in the wake of his love by the Spirit of God who would continue to keep them and hold them and transform them in the journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. So for us, when we see this command, it can feel daunting and heavy, especially for those that have hurt us deeply. They've never apologized, been insincere. Taking the resource of our time, our energy, the words that we've expressed in love to them and trampled over them as if they were useless. It, It can be very easy to find yourself looking at someone, and though you may say the right words, you're hopeless for the idea that God's love could change or correct them so you don't extend grace and love in the words that you extend to them, You see, Jesus gives us no command that he is not modeled and by the Holy Spirit empowered you to carry out. So when Jesus says, love one another, he calls us to come to him in submission by the Spirit to extend love that we can't give. I, I love the book of Micah. It, in the Old Testament, speaks of marriage, and it talks about couples who rush to divorce and are quick to walk away and throw their hands up and say, it's impossible, I've given up. And he says, I gave you a portion of my spirit in your marriage. The idea is that when you make that covenant, that unique marriage relationship covenant, that that the spirit of God comes and gives you the ability and the capacity to graciously walk in life with each other. And for a lot of people that walk away, they never lean in to the spirit of God and what he could provide for them to give to each other. Some of you have said, I'm out of love for my spouse. I don't have anything left give them. Well, when you're out, you go to Christ who's not run out and you open your hands and your heart and ask him to fill you back up so that you can extend to that person what seems impossible to extend to them. In, In the same way as the people of God within the church, whenever we're out of love and patience for those that are around us, we go to Christ who abundantly has poured out his life in love towards his church, and we ask him to give us his love to share with others whenever we have run out of love to extend. So Jesus gives no command that he has not modeled, and by the Holy Spirit empowered us to carry out. So the text in this command is that we would love one another as Christ has demonstrated and shown us by his own example, that as Christ loved us and laid down his life for us. Now look at what's at stake though. He says, so you must love one another as Christ has loved you. What's at stake is you becoming a pond with no new water coming in and as a result of it ultimately over time not being able to sustain life that's in you. You see, the idea is that God would pour his love into your life and that you would share what he has given you with those around you and you will become a refreshment to others as he has refreshed you. And this goes all the way back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel to be blessed, to be a blessing. The idea was that God would take this people who were not a people, who were forgotten, who were enslaved, and he would make them a great nation, not so they could pound their chest in their pride and tell others to bow to them, but that the other nations around them would see the power and active presence and work of God in them and will be drawn to want to know more about the living God through them. The idea is that God would bless the people to be a blessing. It's a river, not a pond. And for you and I, the same should be true with God's love in our lives. We are greatly loved, therefore we are empowered to greatly love others around us. Because we are forgiven, because his love is patient, because his love is kind, and we can extend forgiveness generously to others. Be patient in ways that others throw their arms up and give up who do not have access to the kind of love that we have. See, Jesus, again, is not asking you to give what's not already been given to you, but he's asking you to surrender to him so that this patient, kind, forgiving, merciful, and hopeful love can be extended to the most difficult of people around you. See, why does this matter? Uh, Why spend your last moments before the cross reminding the disciples of their need to love each other? Well, they're going to need to be reminded of it because they're going to fail. They're going to fail each other. They're all going to abandon and scatter. They're going to fail Christ. And they're going to need a love that is covenantal and not transactional. Uh, Not something that's earned, but something that's given regardless of behavior or current performance. But the text goes so far in verse 35 to really drive home what's at stake in our application of this second one another. Verse 35 says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It'll prove to the world that you're my disciples. Our very witness is at stake in the application of this core value. There's plenty of times where we speak the truth in love and the world rejects it because they love darkness rather than the light, but I believe many of us as Christians are giving ourselves a hall pass on something that is so great and so good that Jesus demonstrated it for us and gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. I believe that for many of us today, if we're honest, we've been unloving. We may have been speaking the truth, but we've been not seasoning it in the attitude of love that Christ sees in his love towards you in. And I want to invite you and I today to spend a few moments at the end of this sermon just considering our application of this command. Here's the question I would ask you to consider. What does it look like for you to begin practicing this command here? What does it look like for you to practice this command within our church What does it look like for you to practice this command within your neighborhood? What would it look like for you to practice this command within your marriage? What would it look like for you to practice this command within your family? What would it look like for you to practice this command within your spheres of influence? Here's the application. How can you, this week, because of Christ's love for you, better love one another around you. I believe this is worth our effort. I believe that what's at stake is too high for us to be passive or not intentional about making margin to ask the question, am I actually loving like Christ loved me to those that are around me in the way that I interact, use my gifts, correct, build up, encourage, and practice any of these other one another's. I had a friend who said Uh, One time as he was looking at this text, um, he said, this is the trunk and the roots that all the other one another spring off of. You see, if it's not love, then there's no encouragement. If it's not love, then there's no consideration. If it's not love, then you can't build each other up. So may you this week consider how you can love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.